0: Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 319, part two of Pete's Percussion Podcast PASIC 2022 Preview. And it's PASIC week, and once again, we've made it. I am thrilled to share these excerpts of interviews with you to get you ready for PASIC 2022, and I'm further excited to showcase these interviews in their entirety after the convention. As mentioned yesterday, I'm talking to some folks who have been on the show before and some folks that I'm being introduced to here this time. And there are plenty of previous podcast guests that are presenting at various places at PASIC this year that I did not get a chance to check back in with, but I do hope that you get to see all you're able to during your time in Indianapolis. So today on part two... We'll be focusing on those folks who are presenting on Friday during PASIC, and I'll be going in order of appearance at the convention. So let's get to it. And first up, Bree Wiegand. Bree Wiegand is a composer, percussionist, sound designer, dancer, and filmmaker, and is currently working towards a master's degree at Penn State University, the same school that she received her previous degrees. Brie will be performing her original composition, Sign Language, at the Friday 9 a.m. New Music Research Concert in Room 201. Additionally, she's also part of the virtual PASIC, taking place the following week. Here's Brie talking about her presentation at the in-person PASIC at Indianapolis. (laughs) So Brie, tell us what you're going to be performing at PASIC this year and when it's happening. Uh,
1: My session vibraphone twitching will be happening 9 a.m. on the Friday of PASIC in room 120. And it'll also be uh, half the time will be shared with another artist as well. During the session, I'm going to be performing as well as presenting the DIY instrument I made called the Franken Vibes as my nickname for it, since it's, it looks super crazy, but it's a series of speakers that are all connected through a simple circuit with one end of the connection going through the actual vibraphone bars and the other end going through a metal wire that, while playing it, it will actually trigger the speakers and then also make the tone of the bars come through the speakers as well.
0: Is this your own contraption?
1: Yes, this is something that I built from a laundry cart that I got at Walmart and a bunch of uh, spare speakers that were available in the School of Music. So all of them were broken or not being used for anything. And I originally I used uh, just string and duct tape to attach them to the cart. They now have zip ties, so it's a little more stable.
0: (laughs) Now, when you say it, you were, you borrowed it from Walmart? How it was No, no no,
1: no, I bu- <laughs> no, no, I bought the laundry cart from Walmart and then it was like one of those uh, stands where it's like two sides and then a couple baskets that would go in between. So I took one of the sides, attached the speakers to that, and then used two of the baskets to essentially make a backing onto it. So that holds in all the wires and then that is also what I used to attached to a snare stand so it can um, face towards the audience and stand up while I'm playing.
0: How does this even come about?
1: <sighs> yeah. So this came about, so last year I was in, um, we call it a Roars class. So it's essentially like our um, music technology seminar that we meet each week. So one of the first weeks we were learning about speaker twitching, which that's just, <laughs> which that's where, if you have an old speaker head or you're trying to replace a head, you can tell which way the polarity is. So you would just hook it up to a nine volt battery, see if the head goes up or down when you connect it, which would be the useful avenue of it, but you can also make a bunch of noises with it cause it'll make a very loud, scratchy sound. And if you use two needles on the ends, you can actually get it to play a tone like through the bar and it sounds like, or through the speaker and it sounds like it's screaming which is really fun. So we spent the whole class just messing around with them. So I knew once I was playing, I was like, I need to apply this somehow to percussion. Cause one of the other things was you could extend the actual connection through anything that was conductive. So you could put it, we had like saws and just random pieces of metal. So I decided to go through all of the percussion instruments that we had at the school and through my own and try to find anything that was the right material So like I had a triangle that worked, I sort of did it with a flexitone, but I had uh, tinfoil to like help uh, create the actual connection with it. And then I eventually applied it to the vibraphone, which we had a couple models here, but only the gold Musser actually worked well enough. The other ones I had to use a lot more tinfoil and it seemed the actual bar wasn't conductive. So I'm not sure if it was the coating or a paint or just the material inside it but the gold one worked really well to where as long as i had enough of the wire on one side attached to the vibe so i just used like a piece of wire that i tied around it and tin foil, and then as long as that was there you could touch any part of the bar and it would actually complete the circuit
0: the class you're taking to find all the stuff out is part of what sequence or what what's how does it fit into the framework of what you were working on
1: the class I was a part of, it's since it's a uh, seminar for all of the music technology students at Penn State, it's both undergrad and uh, grad students. At the time, last year, I was doing a one-year grad program, so it was the Professional Performance Certificate, and with that, you're not an actual student, but you're essentially creating your own curriculum with it. So I was doing a lot of music tech, but then I was also doing composition, percussion, and sound design. So it allowed me to uh, focus on like a lot of different things at once, which is also what led to actually building this instrument because I could like s- apply things from all the stuff I was taking.
0: Had you tried to build anything like this before?
1: No, <laughs> I yeah, I never built anything like it. I actually hadn't really dabbled much with electrical engineering before. My dad is an engineer, and I know he would. He makes all kinds of crazy contraptions. He has a um, a train set that goes under our Christmas tree every year. But mm-hmm. I think it's up to thirty tracks now, of like model 30 trains. Thirty tracks. Yeah, thirty tracks. <laughs> 30 <laughs> I
0: thought you were gonna say like thirty cars, and you're like no,
1: no, 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 no. like separate, separate <laughs> trains. It's like multiple levels, and <laughs> so. I, I might get a little bit of the ideas from him, <laughs> sure. but he would like build out all of the uh, circuits and whatnot, like underneath a large board, and have that working everything so he could control everything. But I had never done that something myself. I had seen him do it, but this was this project was the first time I actually like built something hands on. I learned how to solder with it. So especially the more I've been improving it, it's been looking a lot better, sounding better as I learn more. <laughs>
0: Nice. Did, did he see your, um, your Franken vibes and be like, Oh, this could be, we could make this part of the Christmas set or something like that.
1: No. <laughs> I think my mom would kill both of us. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was very helpful. I would ask him a lot of questions and along with like professors here. Yeah. But yeah, he especially helped with figuring out, um, cause I attached batteries to it so I wouldn't be connecting it into a wall. So I wouldn't, electrocute myself with it. <laughs>
2: yeah
0: but he
1: helped figure out um how to connect the batteries how to get the most like power out of it
0: when you have this instrument that you've created are you like okay and now i have to do something with it like i have to write for it i have to figure it out um and now are you are you having to come up with some of your own notation to make any sense of what's happening so someone else could look at it and maybe try to make sense of it
1: yeah i actually um when I was first trying to, well, f- the first thing was to get it to work. So that was the always the first sure. <laughs> um, yeah, right. step of making right. sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, once it was starting to get, like, come together and start to work somewhat reliably, that was definitely a challenge of figuring out how to write music for it, how to play with it. Because also each time I built it, I would make the actual connection slightly different. Mm-hmm. So it started out... Um, It was just 11 speakers that's how many speakers fit on the laundry cart but i had like one wire going from each speaker and i would attach it to 11 notes but since then i've been using more wire to essentially wrap clusters of notes together and then i just recently attached a like alligator clip onto each of the actual wires so i can just clip that on to each attachment and then you can also change which uh, notes are being played by what speaker But another original thing was the best way to make the connection, especially the pitch of the bar to come through the speakers was to use a needle. So essentially just like with speaker twitching, so you would have to like hold it on the key and then strike it. So with that, I could only play with one hand for a while. Since then, I've made um, essentially just this giant wire that it was just rolled up in in a circle. So it looks just like a big slinky that goes across it. And that allows me to play with, like, four mallets and play normally. It's not as accurate as using the one needle, So I, but I can also sort of, like, use the mallets and kind of adjust it as I'm playing since it's just a loose cord across. Yeah, the first piece that I wrote for this, it was before I figured out how to do the bar, before I really knew how it was going to play or if it was going to work. So that was the piece, one of the pieces I'm playing at basic, which is sign language. And that one, I wrote it in mind with uh, keeping it somewhat simple. And so you could play it with one hand or you could play it with both hands. And the main idea behind it was I also knew I couldn't play anything with a rigid tempo, especially since it would only work part of the time, or if I wanted a certain note to come out, it I didn't want anything too regulated, so it would sound like it's I'm trying to fix it as it's going. So the name sign language actually came from the idea of like both sign, like sign wave, and then learning a new language. So I use that idea to kind of have it kind of stumble through the piece as if you're trying to figure out the best way to, uh, like how, like while you're learning something, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to figure out your way through it. So that's sort of how the piece evolves. So there's like little phrases that build off each other and then certain moments that get a lot louder and then, come back down
0: because you figured that out in terms of rigidity did that was that a very different way for you to compose like were you you used to when you've written stuff have you looked at things and you've thought like either straightforward linear fashion or were you was this was this idea of it being kind of open you're like I've kind of done this but this is a new format that I'm doing this
1: like even before I came to uh, Penn State I originally started as a classically trained pianist. So most of what I knew was learn the notes and then play it from that. So especially with like improvisation, it, I really did not like it, especially when I was younger. Cause I was like, I don't know what notes to play. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I can't just make it up on the spot. Yeah. But um, of course, like getting involved with the composition department here, that's been helping going more towards music. That's open and, has less of a strict format, it's not only helped um, my ideas of like writing music, but it's also helped a ton with uh, just learning to improv and getting better with it, especially with this instrument. um, I've noticed a couple times when I've played it out, I'll have sort of a piece written out, or at least I'll have sort of a melody, and then I'll be playing it and I'll be like, oh, this isn't, this isn't working. We're going to play this, (laughs) but I've been able to actually, uh, play through, it and it sounds like a full coherent piece, so that's been a really cool like uh, result of like playing this more and more is like as I get more comfortable with the instrument, I'm able to improvise on it and figure out how the instrument's sounding.
0: Gotcha. well, and the benefit is it's a brand new instrument, so it's it's like everything's perfect
1: and then
0: yeah. so again, everything is yeah. perfect, yeah. You just, you just have to hope it works. That's, that's <laughs> like the biggest problem, right?
1: Yeah, I always say um, it works about thirty percent of the time, so, <laughs> which it's been—it's getting better. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so there's a so there's a you're saying there's a high probability it just may not even work at PASIC.
1: I'm hoping that's not the case. <laughs> <Right, sure>. Because <But laughs> it's at the point now, I'm actually going to like with this link essentially slinky that I have across it. I think I'm going to add a couple more needles to it that are just going to kind of dangle off of it. i found it usually works, especially if I have completely fresh like 9-volt batteries. It uses three at a time. And as long as I plug those in and then play right away, it'll last about 30 minutes before the batteries start to die down. So usually with that, the lights are really bright and it's really loud. The main issue I've run into is if I play it for a long extended period of time, it'll start to get quieter and fade down. So like, it's still doing the effect, but of course it's not as vibrant as I would want it.
0: Your presentation, like you said, you're sharing it with someone else. So does that mean what kinds of things are part of your, of the speaking part of your presentation?
1: The, so it's a 50 minute time slot for both of us. So we each have 25. I'm going to have a um, uh, PowerPoint that'll essentially just show closer up pictures of what the instrument is and what's going on since I want to be able to show what's happening with it and the audience may or may not be able to see it and then it'll be about half and half between explaining like the basic functions of it how it was built and then performing with it.
0: Next up on the podcast Becca Lorido. Becca Lorido is currently the principal percussionist for the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra in Honolulu. In addition to her musical career, Becca is trained in various forms of holistic healing methods, including yoga, meditation, breath work, nutrition, and energy healing. Becca runs a successful business teaching musical techniques to wellness instructors and playing gongs and other instruments for meditative purposes. Becca is presenting a health and wellness session called Performing to Your Potential, A Holistic Approach to Anxiety. Her session will be Friday at 11 a.m. in room 205. Here's Becca talking about her PASIC presentation. So Becca, tell me what you're presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting.
3: I am presenting a lecture clinic and it's at Friday at 11 a.m., And the title of my lecture is called um, Performing to Your Potential. And what I'll be talking about is how to deal with performance anxiety and anxiety in general from a mind-body perspective. So how to deal with this just using tools that we have. Everything that I'm gonna suggest is completely free. Um, You don't need any fancy tools, no prescription drugs, anything like that. The idea is that our anxiety, our nervousness is something that we can train just like our musical skills. Um, So I'm gonna be going over some tools to provide immediate relief for when you feel jitters before you perform. So um, specifically breathwork techniques. Um, There's a whole bunch of different patterns of of breathing that can really help um, slow down our heart rate and improve focus. I'll be going over uh, tapping, which kind of combines the foundation of acupuncture with um, neuroplasticity. And then I'll be talking about some more long-term changes that we can make to strengthen the central nervous system so we just don't become as nervous as often in our lives. So that's the gist of it, performing to your potential. And the idea is that we don't get nervous, or we, we get less nervous, so that we can actually evoke or portray our true musical voice and actually, you know, put out the perspective that is unique to us.
0: How did you come to this area?
3: (laughs) Yeah, good question. (laughs) So along my musical studies, when I was in undergrad, starting when I was about 20 years old, I had always been interested in health and wellness. Um, I started doing yoga when I was about 20 years old. And I had a lot of performance anxiety myself. Like, I, I It was crippling for me. It was like to the point where it was like debilitating. Um, But I also just was anxious as a child, like before I was really performing. Um, And so I started doing yoga when I was about 20 because I didn't really know what else to do. It kind of became like I became really interested in it. And um, it's kind of hilarious because at the time I was uh, like also a smoker and like was not very healthy, but I knew that I wanted to um, just improve this aspect of my life. I knew that my anxiety was what was keeping me from performing well, and it was keeping me from honestly just like living my life. Over the last 10 plus years, I've just kind of made a hobby out of learning more about health and wellness methods. Um, So it started with yoga. I have a yoga teacher certification. I have the 500 hour yoga teacher certification. I have certifications in breath work, meditation, nutrition, health coaching. And then when I moved to Hawaii, it got, it got kind of weird. Um, and I started studying acupuncture. I don't have any certifications in acupuncture, but I'm really interested in it. And then I entered a three-year energy healing school. It talks about very similar concepts as acupuncture and other types of like natural medicine, natural healing methods. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into it really was my own struggle with my own anxiety and just, I don't know, staying relentless and trying to figure out how I could, how I could solve that for myself.
0: I'm curious, before you start doing yoga, are you doing anything in terms of your uh, anxiety meds to, to help this situation out?
3: I had never been on any like prescribed anxiety meds except for beta blockers. I had been taking beta blockers and I'm a fan of beta blockers. I know there's like a stigma or or people feel uncomfortable, you know, talking about it, whatever, maybe not so much anymore. But when I was in school, it was definitely like people weren't talking about it. People weren't as open about it. Um, I did get a a prescription for uh, propranolol and I started taking that, but I was taking a way higher dosage than what was uh, recommended to me on the DL. I mean, all I really knew was what my friends, the, the people who were willing to talk about it, all I knew was really what th- they were sharing. Um, and I knew that wasn't cutting it for me, and I was, I was taking higher dosages. Um, and it worked really well for me. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of it for me in terms of starting to that was really the first time when I took beta blockers, okay, this is how this is supposed to feel. Like, this is how it feels if I'm actually calm. So it really helped actually teach me, okay, this is the feeling, and then how do I work backwards from here and create this within myself? I found it to be really empowering to to go off of beta blockers. So now I don't use them anymore, um, but it's not because of any moral thing um, or, or or anything like that, it's really just, um, out of convenience, I don't want to refill pres- prescription. I don't want to become reliant on them. Um, the more reliant you are on them, the more you're going to need them. Your your tolerance for them grows, um, and it, then it's something that like it, it's really a, a band aid that's not really taking care of the root issue. So I thought maybe I can address this from the root issue and see what's what's really going on with me.
0: I don't know that I've that I've thought that people were, and I, I'm I'm not someone who's taken them, so I can't speak on this very directly, but I never felt like it was a, um, it was a stigma with it though. I definitely take your word for it. If it, if it was, I I've always, one of the things I've heard about the beta blocker portion was that people felt, I think the edge for performing was taken off. And so, and so it made sense in some ways, if you were like a, a orchestra musician where the accuracy is, is key particularly with auditions, But maybe not outside of that. Does that, does that ring up any bells here for?
3: Totally. I I think that like having a little bit of excitement, I mean, there's a fine line between um, anxiety and excitement, you know, and like having a little bit of adrenaline can, can really enhance our performance a lot. And, and I mean, we can play faster when we're a little bit anxious, we can play things and we can really get ourselves in the moment a little bit more but but yeah i mean for me there there seems to be like a point of no return it's like when i get into like the red alert zone it's like uh, my hands are just shaking beyond control and that's when it's like if i'm not in control anymore then it's not okay i have experienced that before where it's like having a little bit like that can be nice and it it can it can make our performance great i guess i was really yeah focusing more on just What happens when I get into that red alert? And that was happening a lot for me.
0: Was there a moment when you start to do the yoga and start to do some of these breathing and some of the other natural processes where you had a performance where you actually realized these can work for me?
3: Yeah, definitely. I'm shocked at how effective just breath work is and just breathing in certain ways can really just like change everything. So from performance to performance, yes, there have been a few instances where I'm like, wow, this is really all that I need, that's great. I've learned, or what I discovered was that it wasn't just one singular performance, but what would happen was I'd be nervous before a show, and then I would mess up, or there would be like a spiral of messing up, you know, have one mistake, and then it's like you get in your head, and then you start making more mistakes. And I feel like that spiral happens on a macro level also. So it's not just, okay, this performance is going to be okay. Now it's like, oh, well, I messed up those last performances. So am I going to screw up again? And so then what I've discovered is that through these practices, I've been able to stop that spiral. Um, I don't go into the performance thinking that, oh, no, like it's not a pattern anymore. Once I was able to start calming down during shows, then um, it wasn't an expectation going into it. So yeah, I guess I kind of label those as like short-term anxiety right before the show. And then long-term anxiety is like, what do I think about myself? What type of like trust and faith in my own capabilities do I have? Because I was practicing and like, you know, obtaining the skills. I was spending a lot of time in the practice room, but as soon as I got to like the key moment, it was like, I don't trust myself. I don't trust that I'm able to do this.
0: It's important you state that because I hadn't completely uh, connected it to what happened, the after effects, basically everything that's happening. That's not the performance, but the ways that it's, that's going to infect your life.
3: Mm. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really pervasive in music school culture is like the fear of not making it and like, constantly being on top of ourselves about like got to practice more um and and it can take a toll on you if you're really hard on yourself for a long period of time
0: at what point do you decide that it's not just that you want to study this or or you know you're thinking of this more effectively but you're actually thinking in a teaching perspective in a um in something that actually could be another either source of income or just another activity that's part of your life.
3: That was, I I went into that not at all expecting that this was going to turn into something. Now I, I do, I teach sound healing to people in the wellness industry. I teach them how to play gongs and singing bowls. That's been a really rewarding experience. I started that during the pandemic, but I started off doing yoga just to help myself And I I started yoga teacher training because I was like, I want to really learn how to do this. And you go to classes and like the instructor will explain things, but there's a group of like 20 other people in the room. And so um, like, there was, I didn't want to get private yoga classes. And so I thought, why don't I just go through the teacher training? I didn't have any um, expectation. I did not have the desire to start teaching yoga. Um, I ended up, Teaching a bit when I moved to Hawaii for the first couple of years, but yeah, I had no intention of doing that at all. And then it just it just sort of grew. I became more and more interested in it, really, as a means to help myself and uh, to learn more about myself, to improve my own health and my own well being. And yeah, it wasn't until the pandemic that I thought, "Wow, I really actually have learned quite a lot about this, and and I might have, um, I might have something to offer." Um, so yeah. And the sound healing thing happened. Um, while I was in Hawaii, I discovered that there are people doing this. It's sound healing. Um, for anyone who hasn't heard about this practice, um, I hadn't until I, until I lived here, but basically, um, people really like to listen and feel the vibrations of gongs and, and singing bowls. And, it's sort of like a somatic experience where just literally feeling the vibrations, um, but also it helps with meditation, um, with, with accessing like a deep level of meditation. Meditation is basically like, like the point of meditation is to be in the present moment. Um, and this is very analogous to performing music, honestly. It's like, how do we stay in the present moment without thinking about what I've done already, or about the future, about what's to come, my to-do list or whatever it is. And so music and sound are really effective in kind of giving us an anchor. Well, I discovered that there's these people who literally play a gong for an hour and people will be lying on the floor on like yoga mats and just deep in meditation. Um, And I went to my first sound bath And I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, this guy doesn't know how to play a gong.
4: (laughs) Where's the technique?
3: (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how I I came up with the idea. Like maybe I actually have something to teach. And so now I I created a course where I teach people how I teach them like uh, stroke types, um, placement and technique on, on singing bowls and gongs. But I also teach them about like, moving gear and like how to do that effectively i I I give them a contract where um where there's a cartage fee and they can like kind of work that in just stuff that like you know people who are like yoga instructors wouldn't you know wouldn't know um and so i've been doing that for a year and i've coached about 25 people at this point in in being sound healers so that happened completely like i mean by chance. It didn't really, I didn't really like have any intention or any plans of, of creating a business or making that happen, but it just seemed to suit all of the interests and everything that I had already had going for me.
0: Oh, that's really cool. I, <laughs> I just, that's amazing <laughs> because I'm, yeah, it's hard for us to get out of the, <laughs> of the progression thing, where, like, you know, it's if totally they're like, like hitting a drum and you're just like, you know, if you you rebound off, that's like getting a better sound, you you need to tune that, you know, like, and
3: yeah. Yeah. And I, I liked it's, it's hard not to turn off our like classically trained brain sometimes. And I I really try, but, but in that instance, I mean, that was a, a, a wake up moment for me. It was like an aha moment of just like, maybe I could, maybe I could do this. If that guy's doing this. And that's the other thing is like, what the wellness industry is like charging and and how oh my gosh the way that um retailers are selling gongs and uh and bowls there are some retailers who are really like um taking advantage of the fact that people don't know the difference between 440 and 432 or don't really know the difference between a chow gong and a wind gong and and it's and so that's where i was like maybe i could maybe i could help out
0: yeah Gong versus Tam-Tan
3: versus... Yeah, versus <laughs> and people are lost. I mean, and yeah. I didn't realize there was such a desire. I didn't realize this was a, a niche at all. Like, But there really are a lot of people who are um, aspiring sound healers in the world.
0: <laughs> the, the, the I think the thing you just got to be careful of is someone pulls out a baseball and, and you're like...
3: <laughs> <"Hey!"> <laughs> you know what's funny, though, is something that's really popular are um, the Super Bowl... Oh yeah. Yeah. People, people go nuts over these. They call them <laughs> flumies in the sound healing world, but I've got like, it's, it's insane. People love them. <laughs> Funny. Who would have thought every time this shows up, we're playing, um, in, in Hawaii symphony, we're playing Harry Potter yeah. the fifth movie coming up and we've got some super ball Tam Tam action happening. And I was like, great. I've got, I've got some gear for that. <laughs> it's like when that shows up in the orchestra, we're just like, ugh, oh, like, I don't want to do this, but people love it. The novelty stuff. It's like,
5: uh,
3: yeah. It's oh, fun. it's great.
0: It's great. I, I always think of, did you ever play, um, George Crumb's Idol for the Misbegotten?
3: Mm, you I've play never that? played. No.
0: So it's a, it's for flute and three percussionists. And there's a section in the, in the middle that has where it's like Super Bowl with large bass drum and so it's like this low roar that has, and it's so much fun to like, just get that awesome. roar just going the whole time. You're
3: like a thunder. Yeah. Yeah. I love that,
0: Yeah. It's super cool. In terms of this specific type of presentation, what sort of things do you, do you find things that people push back on for lack of knowledge? Basically.
3: Hmm. I haven't gotten much pushback. Um, I think the thing that just shows up the most is just um, lack of awareness or, or knowledge. Um, one of the things that I just talk about a lot is um, the the things that affect your sound. Um, so with idiophones, it takes a lot to get them warmed up. And so th- what I see a lot with kind of like newer people, you're talking about sound healing, yeah, with people that are doing yeah. that? yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people will just whack at it. I mean, it's, it's like, there's just not a lot of intentionality behind it because, and it's not because, um, you know, it's, it's not due to anything bad. It's just, they don't know. And no one's really taught them. Um, there are people in the industry who are teaching sound healing, who teach in like, an afternoon and do like a, a two-hour session with like a big group of people. And that's a certification. And so there are people that are walking around saying, oh, I'm, I'm a certified sound healer and and just really haven't had a lot of time or experience with the actual instruments. So something like a big, a big thing, one of the first things that I taught, um, I do all my marketing on social media, and um, one of the first things that really drew people to me was, um, just the idea that you have to, I call it, activate the bowl first. You have to get it going, and then once you get it going, you can slow down. And that was, like, revolutionary for some people, because it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, once it's already vibrating, I don't need to, like, go at full force. I don't know if you have much experience playing singing bowls, but, like, when you play them, they can—they skip a lot. And it can be actually difficult to to have them, um, especially the metal ones, the uh, Tibetan bowls, it, they skip and if they're vibrating too much, it's, it's hard to maintain an even sound. So um, something that a lot of people have noticed, but just didn't really know how to fix it. So I came in just providing some solutions and I haven't had much pushback, but I'm, I'm open to it. I'm ready for it. Ready. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it's, if it's coming towards me. Yeah.
0: yeah. Nice. Is the acupuncture that you, the part that you mentioned, is that an upcoming like plan to, to get more
3: Mm. out of that? It's not really a plan for me to, when the pandemic hit, I was really, um, pessimistic about the future of classical music. And I thought about going to acupuncture school, Mm. but I don't think I, I don't really have a desire to be a practicing acupuncturist. However, I do find the concepts behind acupuncture to be extremely interesting and, Um, I see an acupuncturist and that has been very helpful with my own health. So I'm interested in it. I like to learn. I like to study um, and just read about, about these things. Um, But I don't think I'll be a practitioner. Um, But it's the concepts that um, are in, the concepts of traditional Chinese medicine um, align very well with other types of Energy work. So, um, things like the chakra system or Ayurvedic uh, medicine, which is like uh, stems from uh, Indian traditions. There's a lot of similarities between like many different cultures and their beliefs with that. So, I'm interested in it, but it's probably not a career path for me. I want to give people short term solutions. So when you're feeling nervous, when the flip has already switched, what do you do? Because for me, it was like, as soon as I'm really nervous, um, and I'm feeling jittery and shaky, there's just no way that I'm going to perform the way that I want to perform a little bit was okay. But once I flipped that switch, it was, it was, I was like done. And so I want to give people some tips to get out of that so that we can have a good performance. On the other side is, um, long-term anxiety. So instead of getting yourself into this spiral of like, this is how I define myself. I have performance anxiety. I'm not good at this or kind of expecting ourselves to mess up. How do we get ourselves out of the spiral and strengthen our nervous system so that we just don't get as nervous as often and fewer things evoke fear. So expanding our comfort zone so that we can, um, perform with ease, but also just do more difficult things with ease.
0: Next up on the podcast, Ksenia Kolmjanovich and Liana pailonza Haran, otherwise known as the Vesna duo. Individually, Ksenia Kolmjanovich is a percussionist and composer currently teaching at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, while Liana Haran is a pianist and composer currently working in New York City. Together, they recently formed the Vesna Duo, and they will perform a daytime showcase concert featuring Ksenia's arrangement of Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring for marimba and piano. This concert will take place also Friday at 11 a.m. in the Wabash Ballroom, Here's a portion of my conversation with Ksenia and Liana about their upcoming PASIC performance. Ksenia and Liana, tell me about what you are doing at PASIC this year and when your performance is also.
6: So I'll go first because I should be the person that knows the names of all the performance venues, right? Right now. <laughs> Um, We get to perform our fabulous uh, or promote our fabulous new album. So we're going to play the Rite of Spring with a couple of additions, a couple of cute uh, little things to add on top, Cherries. And we are performing on Friday at 11am in Wabash. So... Come around because I hear it's a huge room. I remember it being a huge room, so we need to fill it up. It's going to be super fun. And we're going to even have a, a guest, a friend who's going to come on up and join us for the jam.
7: I like that it's 11.11 uh,
6: 11
7: at 11 a.m., November 11th at 11 a.m. So it's 11.11 11 at 11.
6: Yeah, <laughs> nice. Good for us. Um, <laughs>
0: it's so cool. <laughs> Well, well done. Everyone. Can you
6: say 11 five
7: times really fast in a row? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, Ksenia, actually, when we when I had talked to you uh, a couple of years ago, this was I think I don't remember if it was close to being done or like in terms of your arrangement. I, what, what, can you talk talk through a little bit the timeline of of you putting, you know, your work on putting this together?
6: Yeah, I know I'm trying to think about it and I can't remember where in the stage, in the process of this, uh, did you and I meet for our episode, but uh, Liana and I, this all started as heartbreak. We were supposed to play in April of 2020 in Carnegie Hall uh, as guests, as chamber music partners to our dear friend, Mitya Nilov. And of course everything went too. And uh, none of that happened. So we were on the phone because I missed our rehearsals. I didn't get to really meet her in person to make music in person. We sort of met once in passing, but we had so many mutual friends and played with a lot of mutual chamber music partners. And we got on the phone and uh, I just remember feeling really so heartbroken, not just for the fact that this was supposed to be you know, so special because we love all those people that we were supposed to play with and the music was awesome. But also I met her over the phone and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm missing out on hanging out with this person. She's so lovely. But of course, she always turns everything into creative moment immediately. And she just said, hey, we can redefine our first musical encounter. So let's just do something that's crazy. And... I said, OK, cool, it's June, the right of Spring, because that seems really insane to me. And uh, I uh, she was really encouraging, really lovely. We played this email ping pong where I would send her a movement every day or every couple of days and she would edit the piano part for me. And so that was sort of mid 2020 and we decided we met up a couple of times at the end of that year safely, and then in 2021, we uh, in February we premiered it in Texas. In May we recorded our album, and then we released it uh, a year later. And voila! In the meantime, we've had performances. We performed at Chamber Music America. So this thing really grew nice long legs and is now running. That's that's my. Uh, That's my perception. I think Liana can tell you that I was a monster and that I harassed her with emails.
0: Yeah, this is point counterpoint now. (laughs) Go ahead, Liana.
7: It was a fun experience. I I was shocked that first, you know, when we talked about it, I asked her what would be the, uh, you know, the craziest thing that we could do, but something, you know, we have to make it count. So what could it be? And she immediately went to write of Spring and, um, so, sure, why not? Let's do it. And literally three weeks later, I, I, I had the whole ballet in my inbox waiting for me. i I think I was side reading slower than she was arranging it, I swear., <laughs> uh, but experience was amazing, and we've never collaborated before. as you know, as Jenny said, we were supposed to it didn't happen. But one of the weirdest things was that when we did run through it first time, it was October. It was just a few months later, since our idea of that, um, we were kind of figuring out. We we're just discussing some different versions of uh, how she would like to go about arranging it, and we kind of got mixed up with who had who score. And it's because we were both. We realized we both marked things down the same way. And that was one of those freaky moments. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we do really think very similarly when it comes to playing and. Um, I, I'm learning a lot from Ksenia uh, when it comes to ensemble. I love playing in an ensemble, but there is a lot to learn from Ksenia. <laughs> Slina, rush. <Thresh. laughs>
6: no, no, no. The feeling is mutual. The feeling is mutual. <laughs> we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of
7: fun. In every aspect of our collaboration, this is the freakiest part about this, is that we're incredibly compatible when it comes to being an ensemble and I think mostly it's because there is a, a enormous amount of respect and trust, uh, first professionally and then we also happen to get along and really love each other as friends and it all comes together but work always comes first and because of that we are highly efficient as a duo.
6: Really I, I back all of that up, it's, it's super special and not just because it is professionally sort of we're on the same wavelengths, but Also, as a person, I just adore her, and it's so much fun. And I'll use any excuse to make a concert so I can hang out with her. It's amazing. Yeah,
7: that's that's the best. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very special every time. And we we just laugh. So we work really hard, and rehearsals can be. You know, we are very honest and very direct with how we're fixing things. But we just always laugh. I just just always. Dark humor. I mean, we're yeah. both Eastern European. We're <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> not going through some stuff, I'm going to guess.
0: That'd
7: <laughs> <laughs> be really dark, but we just, yeah, we just yeah. always have a good time. No matter how exhausted we are, we just work really hard and have a good time.
0: Just for my own curiosity, Liana, where is your, your background is from where?
7: Republic of Georgia. Okay. Do you want me to talk a little bit about the culture and all that just to get... Yeah, a- why not? That would be great. Um, The the culture is a kind of a mishmash of so many uh, religions and so many uh, cultures in a way that it it was on the Silk Trade Road, an ancient trade road. And um, so we have a lot of, uh, in the language and in food and culture, a lot of Hindi and Persian influences. So that also kind of trickled into the music where we have a lot of Middle Eastern modes in polyphonic structure. But also odd meters and all that. So um percussion is is a big part of music in general. And music is a big part of who we are as a nation. I mean, there is no party without people singing and dancing and playing some instrument, whatever instrument, just pick it up, play it, we'll have fun. Um so as growing up as a Georgian, for me, percussion and drums, that whole thing was so attractive to me. I mean, also helps my dad is a jazz drummer. Oh, nice. <laughs> a little bit. Mm-hmm. But That always drew me to it. But, you know, I grew up in a classical uh, school, very strict, all that Schubert and all that. And when I came to Miami and all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, (laughs) you can collaborate with percussionists, My mind just blew up and I've never looked back since, to be honest.
0: It's funny to always hear that whenever a a pianist is very much someone who does a lot of collaborative stuff, because I think our thought is just like, oh, they're in a box and they just stay in the box and, you know, they got to do their Beethoven cycle and, you know, Mm -hmm. all that stuff and, you know, all that. But it's kind of cool that you've that the the collaborative part has been just part of your upbringing kind of from the get go. For sure.
7: That's the reason I actually chose to become a musician from early on is to play with people I. Solo, I do as a career is an important thing to do, but mm-hmm. that's not where my magic is
6: for sure. Yes, um, Alika plays table music. That's the kind of pianist she is. You know, she's an honorary percussionist. Oh, okay. In my sense of the way. So, yeah. But for my doctoral recital, I can't believe I got away with it. But
0: <laughs> wait, did you? You did. You, she did the Thierry de May.
7: Yeah, yeah. Yep, I played the middle part. All those parts are hard. It's it, there's
0: nothing, like you don't have to downgrade yourself <laughs> on that.
6: But she's the only person who could ever play that piano part properly, you know, in, in the piece. So, hey,
0: <laughs> Oh, that, that's so great. Uh, and I know that because you covered this one when, when I had you on, um, but if you could give kind of similarly a little bit of your um, background coming to the U.S. as well
6: yeah so um, I grew up in Serbia that's where I got my high school degree because I went to a music school and then my bachelor's degree and my background was in at first in piano and music theory and then when I was 15 I figured out what percussion was and I just said whoa I want to do this so at 16 I started playing um, at 18, I became a composition student at the Academy of Music there, and then I moved to the U.S. as a scholarship student. First, I was at Illinois State University, um, where I also went for a master's degree, but that was all in percussion. I ended up steering completely towards percussion, and then finally at the University of Miami for... I was there for, s- for four years, um, but Lika and I managed to miss each other by three months she graduated um a little bit before I came in so that's that's sort of our connection that's where we get that pool of people that connected us
0: so when was the first time that you're aware of each other because because of the Miami connection but you you hadn't actually interacted is that right
6: I remember where we first met I was visiting, so my duo partner, my percussion duo partner, was Liana's percussion duo partner at the time, as we mentioned, Mitya Nielov, and we were at Yale, I was visiting Dimitri, and Liana and uh, Dimitri were preparing for a recording session, I believe, they played Piazzonore, which they played so well, if you haven't heard that recording, you have to go see it, because it's the best one out there. And we met up in a coffee shop and I just remember being like, oh my God, oh my God, I've heard about her so much. Oh my God, I'm going to meet this person. Then you meet this super sweet person who's like a butterfly and she's amazing. But it was only for a second and then uh, they had to uh, go away. So that was when we crossed paths physically, uh, but we haven't really, yeah, until that failed project in 2020, we didn't have too many uh, moments of contact. That was
7: that was actually there was, it was really funny i don't know if you remember this but you know we've again we've heard of each other so much at this point you kind of feel like you know each other you know i woke up to ksenia i started speaking to her in Russian, and she goes i'm serbian <laughs> oh my gosh i feel like an idiot <laughs> you know i feel like she okay i think she's gonna stab me with a fork here i'm serbian <laughs> <laughs>
6: <laughs> we have some inside jokes now going. We yeah, yeah, it, we we okay. threaten each other with physical violence all the time for the sake of comedy. It's yes. just what our that's your
0: greeting, Cassandra. That that's is, a, that's that how you say hi to each other.
6: We right, have right. a knife, a knife trick we do when we see each other.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I hope to see that at PASIC, that you, I want that recreated.
6: You got You're it. Like, don't yeah. don't mess the
0: hands. Leave the hands alone. <laughs> I' I'm curious about. Uh, for uh, Liana, were you a fan of Rite of Spring before this idea comes from Ksenia to you?
7: Oh, absolutely. Who isn't? But that's just in my my view of the world. I mm-hmm. mean, anyone that is alive and has a pulse <laughs> that is a musician that can play. Um, I, uh, on, I think it was my master's that I I have played the forehand version with my teacher and then later on played the other part with a friend of mine. So I have played, by the time we were talking about this arrangement, I have played in the past, both piano parts. There's a forehand version um, that exists. Um, So yeah, I was, I was familiar with the score. I kind of had it in my fingers of what's going to happen there.
0: Gotcha. And I I know that uh, Ksenia for you, you were that uh, the piece makes you weep, I think, on a daily basis. Is that pretty much accurate?
6: That is that is actually true. It is one of those where you'd think you'd run out of goosebumps, but I never do. <laughs> Um, so, but I'll say, so Lika played one part and then the other part. And then when she agreed to do this with me. I asked her to play one and a half part at the same time, which is just, could she grow like three more fingers and play more? Cause I can't play 10 notes at the same time. And she did it. She did it. And you can see it all 11, 11 at 11 AM. At basic.
7: <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic score. Actually. I would say 100% at this score, this version, as a pianist, this version works much better than the original forehand version. The original forehand version that is written by Stravinsky is quite awkward because it's meant for two players on the same keyboard and it's all over the place and you just constantly don't have space to play what you need and things are kind of thrown around across the keyboard but when you're just you as a player and then she combined a lot of it it just became so much more organic and p- became more delicious to play so you just you, you just don't want to hold back you just throw it down <laughs>
6: I think she is as always too kind and I would just say she does not represent the opinion of the ensemble or of me. I think Serene's did a great job and I couldn't have done better, but she's just always like showering with compliments too much. And then there's a knife dance, but you know. Sure.
0: <laughs> awesome. Next up on the podcast is Andre Wesley. Andre is currently living and working in Austin, Texas, as a freelance teacher and performer, as well as a teacher of math and English as a second language. Andre will be presenting as part of the scholarly research lightning round session on motion capture analysis of snare drum technique. Andre's session will take place on Friday at noon in room 201. Here's Andre talking about his upcoming PASIC presentation. So, Andre, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC and when you're doing it.
2: Um, I'm presenting on November 11th, I believe at 12 p.m. Um, And my research is over motion capture studies of snare drumming. What I basically did was a uh, 3D transcription of about four drummers' movement based on uh, certain anatomical markers in the arm. I'm only presenting the right arm at PASIC for the four drummers, which is still a substantial amount of information. They just did uh, basic strokes and like a few select rudiments at like 90 beats per minute, yeah.
0: What draws you to this particular item of research? I've always had
2: the idea, even as like a little kid, so it's just like I I ran into the opportunity at the University of Texas as an undergrad to do it, and I took that opportunity, and I just like math personally. <laughs> so well, and that's your job too, right? Your main yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm a math teacher and an ESL teacher currently.
0: So what's involved in the just the motion capture part? Not even the the research part, but just to try to gather data. What do, what do you need to
2: do? We had about five cameras set up mm-hmm. at different angles. Like, basically, if we think about a clock, uh, it would be nine, between 10 and 11, 12, between one and two, and then three. Okay. Uh, five cameras like that. All really bright lights, like a recording studio, almost. Okay. Like really bright lights. And some, these, there's our markers on there. So we, we put them on the, the, there we go radius okay yeah uh, elbow at the joint and the shoulder at the at the joint and we did both sides. The machine is pretty loud so a, a lot of I can't really capture any sound stuff which is supposed to be the other part of the research but I can't I can' do that then. Or it's not what I, it's not at the level where I could really analyze the sound. Gotcha. And that's about it. A lot of press. A lot of go. Stop. Go. Stop. Go. Stop. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, is it the, the kind of stuff that they when they do? Um, was it like the CGI and they have the person in the in the suit and they've got like the little
2: balls on them
0: or whatever? That that Basically. Kind
2: of yes. I mean, the first couple of uh, experiments I did with the professor, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Shapiro. Okay. She, I use. I use her lab. Um, she does primate locomotion for lemurs. So I was the first person to do the actual study and we just, I mean, it looked like a garage. We just hung up black tarp in the back Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're trying to make everything as dark as possible just to get like the best reading on the, on the data, because you have to go in. There's some programs that do it automatically, like, but you got to do every frame for every joint. Um, and it took a very long time. <laughs> what, what, what's defined a very long time? Oh, man. For just data alone, I was spending maybe just a, what do you call it, just to mark the data on the computer. I took maybe about a year. And it was, of course, it wasn't every day, but it was more like 15 hours a week of just me at the computer watching, you know. Watching the same videos four times at least. Yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of, it was actually kind of weird, <laughs> you know, to watch myself that much. You know? right. Yeah. Oh my god, suck, bro. <laughs> What's your pinky doing over there, bro? You did all this. You went to this video just to get the pinky showing, bro. Come on.
0: Bro. <laughs> 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 oh, that's hilarious. So. As you're kind of capturing this data, what, what are you trying to demonstrate, I guess, or what what's the what, what is the data the, uh, to, to, what's the kind of what's the the output of the data that you're trying
2: to get at uh, One of the things I wanted to do was just transcribe like military drumming as it is currently, because um, I know what Sanford moeller did he transcribed civil war drummers basically, or mm-hmm. he learned from civil war drummers and I'm trying to make the argument that it's the same technique, but it's grown maybe, I don't know, 150 years. You know, it, it morphed, you know? Right. But I think it's the same general technique, because it comes from the same place. Gotcha. Just like an updated military. I mean, I'm not the best guy in the military, but, you know, I was <laughs> in the Marine Corps, man. So, it kind of helps.
0: So, you, you said at the beginning that, like, this is just right-hand data yes. right now. So does that mean that your your the next step would be to film traditional left and and kind of to to show that version or you were actually were we looking at kind of two match grips and just
2: comparing I do have some data on the left hand it's just that like the orientation of the camera uh-huh. so it's very hard to get the underside okay and everybody else I transcribed it match, so I do have left hand data on a lot of. On some of the trials, but there, it's too it's too inconsistent, and then I had to do a lot of guesswork on the computer. But that makes any sense? Like I can't see the marker because oh, okay. I'm like I'm like literally clicking where the marker is, like marking it, you know. So I can I can really see the marker on the left hand side. So that's one of the main reasons why it's only right hand data, and it sort of removes that difference between, not entirely, but it sort of removes that difference between master and traditional grip, if we're just focusing on the right hand. Right hand and rudiments and basic strokes. So no like pieces or anything.
0: When you're presenting this, is this, is this one where you're going to, there's going to be a lot of either videos or um, there's going to be like, you, you'll have like PowerPoint with data. Like what's the, what's the kind of the mode of this presentation?
2: Uh, the mode of the presentation is going to be sort of mixed media. Okay. Um, I do plan on bringing a snare drum just to be like, okay, I know we're all drummers, but this is what I mean by basic stroke, you know, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And demonstrating some more stuff. Um, But mostly it's going to be looking at uh, PDFs of data, just um, analyzing movement based on the data and why that's important. I did this. I did. I did a pre-presentation at uh, the University of Texas at the percussion studio with uh, Dr. Bird. And he made a comment. He said, "He said, um, I know we can all see what's going on with people, you know, you know, when it comes to drumming things, but maybe it will encourage some students to, to once they see it, to be more proactive in changing their technique, because it, it does, I'm I, I'm pretty sure it takes some convincing for someone to change their technique after doing it for so long, especially But seeing that data. You can see." movements that aren't beneficial for smooth transitions or smooth playing. But, you know, as a teacher, you can see that already. The data just helps. And that's why I wanted to talk about it, not purely through the data, but mostly through the data.
0: Are you trying to get to a baseline numbers?
2: Like as far as how much data?
0: I have? Well, no, no. In terms of, I'm thinking about this in terms of like a technical point where you say, Okay. You know, like, is there, like, a, um, a certain upper level that's, that's like, we don't, you don't want to be this high or, or this low? There's kind of this range where everything works the best. Uh, I'm, I'm, I may not be giving you the right
2: kind of I understand, what, you, I understand what you're saying. Okay. Uh, it's more of a yes and no. Okay. It's, it's like, if I take the reason why we did basic strokes, it, it allows me to to, like, take out one instance of them playing that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And usually in that one instance, you can see that one instance through the rest of their play, right? Which as a teacher, I already know that. So what I did for myself, it wasn't necessarily getting to a number. It's just repeating the same motion as closely as possible. So not necessarily trying to hit a number or trying to hit some sort of sequence. I'm just trying to hit do the same thing all the time, regardless of how fast or how slow. So basically, just practice, but with numbers.
0: If you're doing it all at the same time, and you can, you have the visual data to see that you're doing this all at the same time. You can get a your kind of your, I guess, your mean range or something like that.
2: Yes, for one drummer, for that sure. one drummer, right? Yeah, yeah. For that one drummer, yes, I, I do have a, a spreadsheet of my averages. Yes. In thinking about
0: what would the kind of the, some of the application of this. Would, would the, is your idea that you would be able to – like someone would be able to take a, a student, maybe a new student, and say, we're going we're gonna to film you so that you can see where the exact points are and then you come back next week and we, we refilm you and may, or something like that where, they, where like it gets really, really exact about those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, something like that. That could be helpful. Uh, one of my goals is to get, I don't know, is to get a lot more people to do it because, like, the data is freely available. So is the, ex- how to do the experiment. One of the other reasons why I did it is because it sort of connects that, that love of math and music for me. And so I'm, like, really able to, like, I'm able to teach mathematics to a certain level, you know. Um, and really, it helps me engage with students, too, especially when I was teaching, uh, like, pre in New Orleans, mm-hmm. I was just be like, well, you know, this is what like a sine function could look like, you know, playing drums, you know, look at
0: that. It's one of the, the cool things about, about what you're doing is that I think if you take a subject that people are less willing to kind of t- <laughs> be super f- pumped about, like the music <laughs> part, I think we we is, it seems to be pretty easy, but you're like, yes. now you're taking the math thing and you're saying, actually, we, like...
2: This is kind of and cool too, right? Yeah, I'm like do your homework, you know. Oh, sure. <laughs> do your homework. Yeah. You know. That's a that's a goal, but that's a that's a lofty goal. I can't really, I can't really bank on that. Sure. Know. Like people are now interested in mathematics. You know, that'd be great. <laughs> right. That'd be great. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. A lot of people clam up whenever numbers start coming out. You know. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. That's sometimes.
4: Yes, yes,
2: that's yes,
0: sometimes yes. me. Yeah. Oh, okay. bad. <laughs> no. 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 Okay. No. I enjoy it. I just if it's a lot of numbers, it depends how many mm-hmm. numbers. Basically,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you're just like all right. I'm now. I'm just. I'm just reading a lot of numbers. And yeah. What
2: is this? This is just numbers. <laughs> yeah. Just numbers. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> Wait. When you've presented it, have you? What? What kinds of things have you kind of? I know you talked about what Dr. Burrett had said about. You know, ways to kind of, I guess, either clear it up or make it more interactive. What kinds of things as you've been kind of getting ready for this or other types of presentations have you realized you kind of – that has helped you get get it better or to more –
2: something you're more confident in? Yeah, I got to shout out Dr. Bird like like twice Mm -hmm. because uh, he gave me some more advice on framing. While I don't don't have enough data to make any substantial claims – like only for the other drummers only have maybe 10 trials for each mm-hmm. and that's a less than a minute of film mm-hmm. that's a lot of numbers because I think if they're filmed at 150 frames per second <laughs> um, same thing with, 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 with what was excuse me which was with me uh, even still it's very that's not a lot of information you know that's a lot of data points but it's not a lot of information anyway two drummers had an in- injury and the reason I knew this, at, during the time of the filming, the reason I knew this because I was always in the percussion studio. Mm-hmm. And so you can see some type of irregular movement in some places. And, like, you know, one person had a wrist injury. And so in their wrist, you can see some sort of, like, I would say, you can see marked movement. There we go. In every single trial, in every single vector, X, Y, Z, for his wrist. With other experiments, he had a back injury. And you can see sort of everybody's shoulders like very chaotic with the data. You know they're like moving, but since he had a back injury, his his shoulder data was very like repeat repetitive. There we go. Mm -hmm. Like it had it was on it was oscillating, which the shoulder andromy doesn't really do that only for certain things like a roll or yeah something like that or singles or something like that. It Mm could help prevent injury, I think, but you would need a lot more data points. And that was one of the things Doctor Bird said. And trying to see a way of how to talk about the mathematics without losing any of the quality of the mathematics, because it is basically calculus. But I think, but I think, uh, since it's based around like really basic snare drumming things, like you know, tap, upstroke, you know, like I think, I think drummers can can can. Can use that drumming, their drumming pedagogy as a scaffolding in order to get into the mathematics, and that's and, th- and those two things that Dr. Bird really uh, talked to me about.
0: Next up on the podcast, Jillian Baxter. Jillian is currently the assistant professor of music and percussion professor at Albany State University the Historically Black College University in Albany, Georgia. Jillian will be the moderator for the panel presented by the PAS Diversity Alliance. Percussion is for everybody, black women percussionists. The panel will take place on Friday at 1 p.m. in room 204. Here's Jillian talking about her upcoming PASIC presentation. (laughs) All right, so Jillian, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting.
5: This year, we're having a panel discussion. It's part of the Diversity Alliance Percussion is for Everyone. We've had one every year, and it's been very successful. This year, we're featuring Black women percussionists, so really excited about that. It's going to be featured on Friday of PAS. It's going to be at 1 o'clock. On Friday, I believe it's in room 204. Excellent. And who are the other panelists? Other panelists, we're going to have Britton Renee is Collins, you've heard of her before, and uh, Camilla Chiez is going to be our, our main panelist. I'm mm-hmm. moderating, but I'm also going to be um, talking within there as well. And then by the time we get to PASIC, you know, we might have another surprise guest person in there as well. You know, we love to have so many perspectives. but Those are our main people as of today.
0: Do you have connections to those other guests aside from asking them to be part of the panel?
5: Brittany Renee Collins. um, my initial was, she's in a diversity alliance, so learning her that way. But actually I, I play here at, with the Albany Symphony and she actually is a guest performer with our symphony, this concert series. Um, so that'll be our, our other connection. We were scheduled to have her in earlier this month but then when, um, when we had all the weather that came through We rearranged everything and we moved that concert to February, but she is gonna be playing with the symphony. She's gonna be playing the Rosaro um, with us. Um, And she's actually gonna do a kind of a clinic or speak, you know, here on campus as well that day before the performance with the symphony. So um, as far as Ms. Keyes, um, most of my association with her was actually when we were doing a spotlight series we did with the Diversity Alliance. We did these different little spotlights and, and introducing people. And one of my best friends said, hey, do you know this person? And, I, and she sent me some of her videos and her social media. I like, wow, I want to know this person. Reached out to them and kind of been interacting with them over the last year or so, just getting to know them. And kind of already did a mini spotlight for the DA. I never I'm not totally sure uh, when
0: they when you all have these panels if there's a plan uh beforehand if if the if you give the guest or the panel other panelists questions what's kind of the way that you hope to see this uh come about I guess in terms of the conversation and what you are hoping from this uh, particular panel.
5: You know, we have an overall kind of abstract or you know the what you would see in the book says so this is the description and what we're trying to talk about. But then I do have like a list of questions or different subjects that I kind of design with other people we look at and say, hey, these are some of the things we'd like to talk about. I have sent those questions in advance to those panelists so they can read through them and, you know, kind of think about them or. You know, some of the topics we're going to talk about, you know, may be something that they may want to talk about or may not really want to talk about. So, give them an opportunity. And then I do a kind of pre-checking with those panels to see, hey, how are you feeling about these? Is there anything you really, really passionate about? We'll make sure. Um, and is there something you don't want to talk about? You know, make sure. But Then also, is there anything that's not here? that you want to talk about, I want to make sure to give you that room to do that. So that's kind of how um, we work with a panel discussion. You know, here's the ideas, you when, want your interaction, but it's still very open to go a different direction if needed.
0: Why, why did it feel like now was the right time for this particular grouping of artists to you know, come together to talk
6: about this?
5: I, I think, you know, this has been a conversation for a a while now um, in the Diversity Alliance, been saying, hey, we need to feature Black women, we need to feature Black women. Um, And I think we had quite a few people who were really passionate in the Diversity Alliance about um, Black women. And I think over the last few years, we've had so uh, much conversation in, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and there's been so much so many different um, groups and types of people who've been featured and black women is one of those groups that we really just don't get to see, especially percussion. We see a lot of men, we may see other women, but we don't get to see black women. And there's so many great women out here doing things. So I just think that it was just time to, to showcase like, Hey, these are these awesome women. There are women out here doing this. Let's Let's talk about them and let you see them. If you Thinking about your own background, are there obvious
0: and then less obvious reasons why there are so few um, women in the classical percussion or maybe the um, solo percussion or, or something that's, that's more percussion featured that there just seems like there are fewer or if they're not fewer, they're just less that, that are well known to a larger group of people?
5: I guess because I, I teach music appreciation as well. I think about history in, in general for women. Um, there's just been this scope of um, the idea of men, male roles and female roles. And throughout time, it's, it seems that at, at different checkpoints, women have had to make a choice. You know, I, I can do the career or I can have the family and this and this and this, and I think that a lot of um, women—I'm just saying globally—women um, end up have are choosing the family and this other, you know, which is not wrong. But to try to balance that with a full-on career and all the things that happen, um, our time is not really friendly to help that out. Um, because a lot of times the the mother is the one who's at home taking care of the kids, whereas the father can leave the home and be gone and on tour and just like that. It's not always that way today, but I think just if we look over decades and decades of time, that's what's happened. It's been women had to make a choice in that's what's kind of happened so that happened with women and then you know as far as we talk about race I think that as far as classically trained type of musicians um we don't have a lot of classical arenas everywhere you know I think if I was I was in we're in Georgia so if I was in a northern state you know there are more um, symphonies, I have more access to all these different things, opera, that I can physically see and go touch and find those teachers. But if I'm in the South, it's I have to go select cities to see that. So unless I'm in that big city that has it there, I don't see that. I don't have the resources. So that's why I'm not going to see as many Black female percussionists. I'm going to be surrounded by a lot of people who don't look like me and I'll go to a certain point and then I may do something else.
0: And I was thinking I was I I, I had forgotten that there's even a like you're in a you were mentioning the regional symphony uh, mm-hmm. that you play in. But you're how far from Atlanta?
5: I can get to Atlanta in about 3 hours, two and a half to 3 hours.
0: So in n- traffic Right. So so not, and I guess more importantly, not a place you're just going to kind of casually drive to, like that's a a distance where you have to make a plan. Exactly. I mean, what we know is that it's interesting to think of someone like Elaine Jones and, you know, how important she is, but also was she it for, you know, in terms of classical percussion as a, as a orchestral performer? For for black women for like a long time,
5: yeah. As far as the listing and people talking about it, if you ask somebody, they're gonna say Elaine Jones, and then there's gonna be crickets, right? You know, um, yeah. because there's there's not that many out there. But the the interesting thing I have to say is that the more I meet people and talk to people, there there are people out here who've been doing it, but we're so far removed from each other. Um, that we just don't know we exist to each other. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, and I was thinking how, I mean, you like, like, for instance, you're not that far away from uh, Jessica Williams. No. uh, Who's in Alabama, but it's, but it's like, that's still states away. I
5: mean, That's still a few hours uh, to get over to where she is. Right.
0: And so it's, it's interesting to even think of just, you know, how networks are tough. I mean, they can be tough to come by for anybody, but particularly.
5: Yeah, it gets to be very complicated. I mean, even if you take out that one trying grouping, if we talk even collegiately, I, mean, I think yeah, in the yeah. state of Georgia, you know, we have like 26 uh, university of system of Georgia schools. But for me to get to make a collaboration with another teacher in another school is not necessarily just next door. So, you know, even in a state, a collaboration may be challenging. I I think even in I'm from South Carolina, but I'm right on the border of Georgia, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was blessed to have many of the teachers I actually had were female. My percussion professors, I had a middle school band director that was female, Uh, but past that, I didn't have. Many other female directors, where I saw them, I went to clinics. Whether you talk about Allstate, uh, they just weren't around. You know, it wasn't until many, many years later I'm starting to see female conductors, and then most of those were not black. Right, you know, right. so yeah. depending where you, where you are, it can look a certain kind of way.
0: Are you beginning to notice um, at all, even in the last few years, um, any any people who are kind of like next generation coming up, who are starting to see you as a as a role model, mentor? Even though I know you're you're still early in your career, but like are are they are they starting to come to you like, hey, yes. <laughs> Dr. Baxter,
5: yes. Yeah, I I think I do see, I have more people who seek me out or call me up or will message me and I'll talk with them or have lessons with them. You know, I, I have had a lot more contact, but I think it's also the era that we are in that everything is more readily seen. So people are able to see, oh, you do exist over here in this world. Uh, whereas maybe before it was it's hard to find people unless you just physically know them or this person knows this person. Yeah. So, social media has helped out a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's how that's how I know who who Britt and Renee is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she has the most dramatic uh, maybe um, photo.
5: Of oh, yeah. anybody
0: in in the world right now,
7: I
5: I, I love yeah. her. I love her photos. I know. <laughs> Ran into a lot of people who are excited about the panel and just the discussion, and you know, seeing what's going what's going to be said, looking for inspiration. If there's any solutions that we could talk, you know, I, I think everybody's pretty excited about it. <laughs>
0: And finally, our last contributor to the in-person 2022 PASIC Preview, Neil Grover. Neil is currently retired from much of what he's done for his percussion career, but he's best known for his many years as percussionist with the Boston Symphony, as well as the creator of the successful percussion company, Grover Pro Percussion. Neil will be presenting a symphonic lab clinic called Playing percussion accessories, not as easy as you think. Neil's session will also take place on Friday at 1 p.m., this time in room 205. Here's Neil talking about his upcoming PASIC presentation. All right, so Neil, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC this year and when
4: you are presenting. Well, I'm presenting... uh on uh that's a good question yeah uh, on friday november uh, i'd have to look the date up I believe it's the 11th 11th that's right at 1 p.m in room 205 mm-hmm. uh, at the convention center and um the title of my presentation are percussion accessories not as easy as you think and uh it kind of is going to be a very short synopsis of kind of really my life's focus in terms of percussion on percussion accessories and trying to elevate uh not only conception of how important they are but also techniques and concepts and uh you know so so we feel good as percussionists playing uh anything whether it's snare drum as well as triangle the triangle is important just as important I'm curious, you know, you've for sure, do you know how many times you've presented at PASIC at this point? Um, I presented at PASIC four other times. Okay. But I've done between master classes and clinics and Texas music educators, Midwest. I mean, I did a lot. I used to do a lot of um, traveling, doing clinics with in cooperation with the Zildjian Company. Um I've done a couple of hundred of those over the years in Europe or Japan or throughout the U S and I, I I've always, but I enjoy doing it. I still enjoy, I, I enjoy that kind of uh, collegial atmosphere and getting together uh, with a like-minded people who, who have a passion for the same things that I do. Yeah. Well, I'm curious at this point,
0: when you are presenting something like you are and I obviously things that you have talked about thought about for 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 a long time do you come in preparing for something like this with like new information like how do you think about how are you taking in new things and trying to kind of
4: yeah no that that's interesting you know over the last number of years there's been a lot of changes and elevation in terms of accessory playing and generally in percussion playing I mean what I played to get into college you know you'd expect the kid in starting high school to play today um, so um but i do incorporate i see I, I love it when i'm on youtube or at a clinic or a performance i see young percussionists taking some of the techniques that i've been espousing you know over the last 40 years and taking them to the next level so then i come home and i practice I say, oh i <laughs> i kind of learn how to do that and uh, you know and i do incorporate some things as you know as they they come up uh, into it but my presentations the focus of my presentations re- really hasn't changed much and it really is about uh, conceptually uh, accepting and embracing the fact that as orchestral percussionists or even in concert band or symphonic percussionists that a lot of the time is going to be spent playing small handheld percussion accessories and while not you know, learning to play uh, the tambourine is not as difficult as is really as learning to play marimba. Well, nevertheless, you need to spend some time doing it and have some focus and have a concept of what, what you want to achieve, what it should sound like, what you, what you got to think about what you're doing. I find it sometimes it's difficult to to get young musicians away from the ink on the page. Stop worrying about The rhythm. Don't even look at it. You should know it. Let's talk about the music. Let's talk about the sound quality. Let's talk about the texture, the orchestration. What's going on? So I love to delve into the musical things. I mean, people are so so proficient technically, and you know they that it's really for me. I can I can offer much more talking about the music and not techniques. I wonder is some of. You know, I, I had um, I talked to Keith Alejo a couple
0: of years ago, and I, I know that he's so, he's someone who's like very very passionate about these instruments, and I, I think in a similar way that that you are, I would I would guess. And I know, I wonder if some of what you uh, what you espouse is is the, is hoping to see that particularly younger students take these things seriously, and it, there's very much I think it, it can be very much like a um oh you just need me to hit the triangle and i'm just gonna right. like you know whatever right. angle that happens is fine right or i'm That's gonna hit right. the bass drum and i'm just gonna you know like you know all those things where you're you actually I, I like you i would assume that that if you see someone who's pretty young who's who's like actually taking that seriously like it it's like oh this is great like thank you for
4: yeah no no ab- 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 absolutely and you know I, I usually start off a lot of times when I'm meeting with young students. My first question is, what should a triangle sound like? And we have a whole discussion about acoustics and and physics and sound production and overtone resonance, harmonics, you know uh, re- reflection of sound and and so uh, yeah, definitely it, it's it's actually the misconception is that they're easy to do any yeah and every anybody can play the triangle poorly anybody (laughs) there aren't a lot of people that can take a bent piece of metal and make music and that's the that's that's where it's at you know and and if we remember as percussionists you know unlike some of my colleagues in an orchestra that that play one instrument i play the violin i play the clarinet I'm, I probably played over a hundred different instruments in my career. Now, now I'm, you know, I'm not a, a virtuoso on any of them, but I don't need to be. What mm-hmm. I need to do is be able to, to play the part, whether it's on a, a conga part or or a marimba part or a snare drum or a tambourine part. So um, that's the, you know, once we we really understand the difficulty of being percussionists is having all these different concepts and knowledge and techniques at our fingertips all the time really that's really hard (laughs) and that's that's what i i tell my violinist friends when they complain that i play less notes than them and i get paid more so they don't like that you know so what i have to explain you know there's 40 of them and there's just a couple of me right yeah, there's this one crash symbol part. That's it. Guess, that's guess, it. Who's, guess who's getting yelled at if that's, if, if and, I miss and it. You, and you better not be wrong. You yeah. know, I, I heard somebody like, explain being a, uh, an orchestral percussionist, it, 90% boredom, 10% panic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always at that.
0: Oh, that's accurate. I like that. Well, you know, when you prepare for a PASIC versus other types of clinics, are there – are there ways that you take things because you know that you're in front of a, an audience that's like percussionists, like for sure, that you do differently if you're
4: maybe at a high school or other types of uh, clinics? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the difficulty at, at, at PASIC is you have a and and the beauty of the show is you have a wide range of abilities and levels and ages. Mm-hmm. And so the difficulty is not to talk completely over the heads of the beginners, but not talk so below some of the, you know, semi professionals serious students, and even professionals that come. So when I go to a school like a music conservatory, I know if I walk into Eastman and do a clinic, I know they're all very proficient on certain things, and I can start at a high level. At PASIC, I, I like to give everybody a little something to go away with. If I if I could reach all the levels with just one thing, one thought, and one one idea, then I then I, that would be a success. So it's much harder to do that.
0: Yeah, I bet. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, um. yeah. So I always try, and and this is a lab. They they asked me to do a lab, which I've never done before, and I really. I still am not clear on the difference between a lab and a master class. They said a lab is is uh, more informal, so I think what I'll do is I won't prearrange people to play pieces for me. I'll just anybody in the audience want to come up who has trouble with something, come on and tell Doctor Grover about it. We'll we'll give you a prescription. <laughs> so uh, so it should be fun. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. No, that that that's awesome. I. I I appreciate the difficulty that 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 could <laughs> yeah, yeah. comes into play. I mean, the kind of the fun thing with the lab is it sounds like you can um, you can just leave pockets of time to, to know that there's going to be a lot of like
4: hands on. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm going to have them set a microphone up on the floor in front of the stage. So if anyone wants to ask a question, come on up, ask the question. Um, you know, I, I've gone to a number of master classes and clinics over the years, and it really upsets me when a, a top notch orchestral player will come in at an educational show where most of the attendees are younger students, and then they start giving a very narrowly focused presentation on a certain passage in a certain symphony. And what the kids really need is how do you play cymbals? How do you, which, how do you hold these things? You know, what, what how long do you let them ring these basic things and not so much the, you know, how I play the, this passage uh, in a particular piece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. So sometimes baiting sometimes going back to basics is a good thing, but I, I like to talk a lot more than play in, in these things. And I, I ask a lot of questions. I, I try and, if nothing else, get people in the audience thinking, you know, and, and, and they could research a lot of these things on their own. And there's a lot of material out there. But, you know, really back off and say, you know, as percussionists, we walk into an, a room. And we're usually in the back of the ensemble, if it's a large ensemble. And what are we doing there? <laughs> Why are we there? And what are we bringing to the table that those other groups can't bring we have that discussion how we fit in and you know when to lead and when to follow and you know uh, you know it's like saying well how loud is forte <laughs> right it's so totally it depends on the size of the group it depends on the piece the period the acoustics you know and this is what this is what you know i know in dci and it's a I never participated, but I know a lot of young players and they, you know, they have a very, very technically broken down system of playing in certain dynamics or certain heights, you know? So when I used to teach uh, in college um, early in my career, I would have to tell the kids coming in from DCI, forget everything you learned last summer. Just forget it. It does not apply to what I'm going to be working with you on. And not to say there's anything wrong with it. It has, it, it, it's really good. and It has a place, but, in my world, there's no absolutes like that. There's no right and wrong. There's better choices than others. But you know <laughs> you yeah, know, what's you know you're playing is you're playing uh, Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet symbols. It just says piatti, meaning plates in the time. It doesn't tell you what size, how thick, what sound, what what where's you know, the
0: cutoffs you know like yeah
4: how do you you know you... <laughs> cutoffs is that's a pet peeve of mine. and i tell percussion composers of the romantic and and baroque and classical romantic eras were really great at notating exactly when a percussionist should be struck they really sucked at notating how long that that note should sustain. Yes. So don't count on them to help you right. out at all. Now, how are we going to make that decision? And you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I, that's a good. It's a good. It's a good reminder of, like, we've put so much thought into this because we've been doing it, and like the, our field is more developed now. Right. And, and right. whereas it was everything, you know, in the. You know, up through maybe the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, was was basically what they considered exotic, like a, just a new sound color, and it wasn't. They hadn't right, developed. Right. The,
4: oh, 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 well, like sound effects and yeah, yeah, open nine, the the Janissary uh, instruments. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it, it's you know, it's funny you say that because I have a a, a a large collection of instruments, including a lot of very old cymbals, tambourines, and triangles, which I've collected the triangles of the time of Mozart and Beethoven sound like you're hitting an iron bathtub. It's awful. We've developed the instruments. So the problem is the instruments today ring so long, which is nice, but that's not what they heard back in those days. So what do you do? Do you dampen it? Do you not, you know, you know, we get into this whole discussion about original instrumentation and sound color. Yeah. And, and a lot of times in those days, the early orchestras, there weren't no real percussionists. if there was a bass drum part a cellist would put his instrument down and grab a stick and play you know i mean the, the art form today is so refined and it's it's just it's just oh i can't think of any other instrument grouping that is that has changed and 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 really that has really come so far along other than percussion right I mean, think of the marimba alone. The range has increased. The techniques have gone crazy. I mean, four mallets used to be a big deal. Now I'm seeing six, and I stick around with two. Two is like- <laughs> <laughs> right. The paycheck asked
0: for two, and now I'm going to play two. Thank you. It,
4: you know, it pays the same amount of money to put yourself on that marimba part or True. play the triangle part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's very true. Anything else about the uh, the session at PASIC to that you I haven't asked?
4: Yeah, yet? it's going to be um, informal. I, I'm hoping a lot of uh, uh, players will come with a lot of questions, with a lot of problems. You know, because I, I love to fix things. I mean, someone a lot of times people will have trouble with basic things like a finger roll. And I could fix that in sixty seconds. I know there's three things. I know what they're going to be doing wrong, and I could get them going and you know very quickly. So it's nice. Uh, I think it's just going to be an informal, fun. I'm hoping people will come and laugh and and learn something, but have a good time as well because that's really what it's about.
0: I had one more follow up on it, which is again thinking of of how you know the the wide breadth of of things you've done but is it is it do you see will you see like a contemporary of yours walk into a room and you're just like, Oh, come on. Like, do you need to be here for this? Like <laughs> you get like nervous, like extra nervous, like somebody shows up like, really? No. <laughs>
4: that happened once when Alan Abel walked in and sat in the front row. Now I'm thinking, is he trying to bust me? Or is he really interested in what I have to say? It turned out he was so nice and gracious. He, he actually really wanted to hear what I had to say. Um, uh, but it, it, you know, wow. When that happens, it's, should I be really, really uh, thankful that this giant and percussion came to hear me? Or yeah, yeah. is he really trying to throw me off here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, were you like, let's welcome our special guest, Alan Abel, to the... Uh... <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. You know, I, I find PASIC such a great hang and such a great atmosphere that I, I love it when I see people stick their head in. And, you know, people will come, people I know... And they'll stick their head in for five minutes and leave. Vic Firth used to do that all the time. He, he'd he want to make sure I saw him, that he was there. But he would never stay long. And I don't blame him. You know, he was so busy. But it was nice that he stuck his head in. So, um, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, um, it's such a great atmosphere at that show and such a great hang. And I have not been since 2019. I, I didn't go the year they had it during COVID because I had some health concerns. I realized what I missed about it were the people, the family, were people I see once a year, colleagues, meeting the young students. It really, I'd always come out of that show completely exhausted and totally energized.
0: And with that final comment from Neil Grover we finish our preview episodes for in-person PASIC 2022. Major thanks to Bree, Becca, Ksenia, Liana, Andre, Jillian, and Neil for their time, and make sure to catch all of their great work at PASIC 2022. And again, no rave, just that I hope to see you at PASIC later this week. Please say hello and have a great time. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, The Episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time, and hopefully later this week. Until then.